Filmmakers make films, but films make filmmakers. From blockbuster premieres to grindhouse theaters, late night cable to the local video store, there is no greater classroom for aspiring filmmakers than cinema itself. Join your host, Eric Skorzynski, as he dives deep into the minds of legendary directors, producers, actors, and more to discover their biggest influences and to explore the impact their films are leaving behind. This is Film School. Grab your popcorn. Class is about to begin. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Film School podcast. Casey, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Sure. Happy to be here. Yeah. Glad to have you on and uh, really love what you've been working on lately. But I want to go back to the very beginning to uh, Casey's childhood. Tell me a little Mm -hmm. bit about your, your early formative kind of cinematic experiences. Um, I grew up in southeastern Massachusetts, which is not really the best place to grow up if you want to be a filmmaker. Um, it's like another Hollywood. What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> the closest theater, I think, was like at least maybe 30 minutes, 25, 30 minutes. Um, and, you know, it's weird. Like you you think now in the world of, of cinema, like distribution, certain certain movies like we were going to do Black Friday was going to go to, to Alamo. And they were going to do it in their theaters in like Austin and New York. And it's like certain movies have, I I remember heard an interview with Tarantino where Disney was going to shut out the hateful eight at all the arc lights. And I'm, I'm realizing now, as I'm talking to you, this theater that I used to go to, they did show blockbusters, but they also had a weird, like um, sort of fringe section. Like I remember Joe Lynch who did mayhem and, um, you know, is doing episodes of Creepshow now as a friend of mine. And I will text him things like random company credits and be like, what movie is this? And he knows, but he's, he's, he's well steeped in movie culture. And I sent him this movie that I had seen and he was like, I don't know what that is. And it was this weird 3d movie called treasure of the three crowns. You've seen Raiders, Star Wars, Aliens, and Close Encounters. But you are about to experience a totally new dimension in entertainment. Forged from the wealth of kings, source of the magical powers of good and evil, unleashed in the hands of a madman. Now, five daring heroes defy the odds in a deadly quest to capture the greatest prize of them all. Go for it. Treasure of the Four Crowns. And it was like an 80s, like, it's hard to find, too. So there was that one theater, but there was no comic book stores. Newbury Comics wasn't around yet. And we had video stores. But I had this weird thing that I think was specifically in the Northeast in the, in the late 80s because we didn't have cable. We never got cable till I was like in college. It was this weird set-top box thing called Preview. And you put it on top of your TV and it was like a switch. And then you would get like, I think HBO was on it, but it was a right. bunch of other weird stuff. So when I was a kid, the formative years of my life were watching things like Hot Dog the Movie and <laughs> right. Kentucky Fried Movie and UHF. Yeah. Um, you know, we would go to the movies to see all the big ones like, you know, Temple of Doom or whatever, or um, Return of the Jedi were like some of my earliest memories. Um, but, you know, that was, it wasn't until I was in like high school that a, a buddy of mine 
started showing me like X-Men comics. Mm. I was like 14, 15. And I was like, whoa, I was like, wait a minute. Cause we, there, there was nowhere to get that yeah. stuff around me. So, yeah. 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 Starting with those fringe movies, you know, like UHF, which is, you know, it's, it's funny that actually comes up because Emo Phillips and Weird Al are touring right now, which is kind of cool, but, <laughs> um, but you no know, yeah, it's but it's it's really cool hearing that was kind of your first exposure. Did you have more of an affinity toward those types of movies than say the blockbusters, or did you just take it all in as a kid? Was no, it just no, I no, I don't want to try to give some bullshit answer that I'm some arbiter of taste at all, but but that that was never really my thing, you know. Um I loved, loved, loved my brothers and I probably saw Fast Times at Ridgemont High a hundred times at least. Hey. On VHS, same thing with Caddyshack. Um, my parents never really wanted horror or, you know, uh, stuff like that in the house. But I was always more into like, I think the first real turn was, I don't know what age I was. I was a kid, but I saw Aliens uh, into the theater. We we lied. I think it was probably Aliens and the Fly. We I'll never forget. We lied. We're supposed to go see this Howie Mandel, Ted Danson movie called like one fine day or something like that and mm-hmm. i'll never forget the, i'll never forget this the print ad was for one fine day and right next to it was the fly and all the the copy said was be afraid be very afraid and i was like sure let's go see one fine day and then like my buddy and i snuck in to see the fly and it yeah. was i mean talk about shocking you know what right I mean? right um so it was that it was that sort of thing. I was I was more intrigued by things like the fly or aliens than I was some of the 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 more hokey kind of B movie stuff for sure. Sure, sure. When you were watching these movies, did it did it instantly create this idea like okay, I want to be a part of making this sort of stuff, or was that even on your radar at that time? Were you more no. in the vein of I enjoy it for what it is? Um, no, it was. Know. And somebody asked me this question before, and I have a very vivid memory specifically of um, my dad growing up was a high school track coach. And one of the events they used to do was the pole vault. And I remember watching Temple of Doom in the theater. And I think Indy like pole vaulted over the chasm of lava uh, where Mola Ram's like lair was or whatever. And mm. I remember thinking to myself, well, wait a minute. My dad coaches pole vault and like Indiana Jones is doing the pole vault. So somebody needed to teach Harrison Ford, which I didn't know at the time would have been a stuntman right. to do that. I was like, well, wait a minute. I'm like, I'm like, wait, somebody said, I'm like, oh, so there's a process behind this. And I think that was my first memory of going, well, people are actually working on this thing, doing this thing. So that was definitely, um, you know, that and torturing my friends to, to do little super eight movies or, put on plays in class or whatever, but it was definitely early, early on for sure. Yeah. I, I love hearing stories of when people kind of gain consciousness of like, okay, yeah. this is a movie. And well, um, that was it. That yeah, was it. Sure. Yeah. Joe Lynch was on recently actually. And he was talking about watching ghostbusters and just realizing the camera moving over to reveal the taxi driver's skeleton. And he's like, Oh, they actually, there's something intentional about this, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and, and for me, it was uh, watching an old Errol Flynn, like 1930s, swashbuckling movie i think it was either captain blood or seahawk and i remember it was very theatrical still because it was still the 30s they're still doing a lot of stage stuff and i remember someone got stabbed but you just saw the sword kind of go under their arm and they held it there and fell back Mm -hmm. i just remember thinking like oh they're just pretending for a movie and i'm watching it and um 
you know, when did you, you mentioned like super eight movies, um, you know, when did you kind of start really doing that? Was that pretty instant? Like I'm going to try to recreate. Yeah, before some we jump, you just, you just gave me a, a yeah. thought bubble while you were talking. I think, I think one thing that's crazy too, is what, what between film Twitter and like podcasts, I could be wrong, but I, I feel like one thing that's not talked about enough is, is how movies have changed. And what mm. I mean by that is like Chris Tonic, who's my editor. Um, he's got a, of course, like most of us has a great cinematic language. He kept talking about Lawrence of Arabia and I had never seen it. And I rented it the other night on iTunes and I was just so fucking blown away at just the scope of the movie and the editing of the movie, like the match shot to the desert. You know what I mean? And a lot of movies back in the day, whether it was Hitchcock or, um, you know, some of these other guys, John Ford, a lot of these movies were more like filmed plays where you have these long shots and like you're, you're letting the actor sort of do their thing. And we don't, we don't really do that anymore, you know? Um, So I sort of got off track and and lost your, your next question, but I just wanted to bring that up because as you're talking about Errol Flynn movies, it's like, man, movies have changed, you know, drastically for sure as a medium, as a medium. Yeah. Well, the, the acting style you're playing, you know, they were playing for the back row and that's why a lot of movies that we watch now and go, Oh, Oh, that was hammy or it was this. It's like, no, they were bringing their stage performance. They're giving a killer performance, but they hadn't learned how to bring it down for a camera. That's right in front of their face versus playing to the bleachers, you know? And um, it it is interesting. And you mentioned Hitchcock watching rope, which is, you know, we talk about one take movies to pull that off, you know, in, whatever time period it was, uh, yeah. whatever year it was, it's, insane. It, it's, insane. It, it's crazy. You know, you, yeah. you, you don't have steady cams. You don't have, it's harder to do these match cuts. It's, it's really fascinating watching them bring this yeah. to life. Um, do you remember the first time you tried to replicate what you were seeing on screen with a super eight camera in a backyard with your friends? Yeah, we used to, uh, you know, this is in the nineties. So we had like, the high eight cams or whatever that had the tapes in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used to, you know, this was like right around the time I remember reading or hearing, I had a friend who was older than me uh, who had, he always had great Mac computers. And I remember seeing like the first iteration of either final cut or Adobe premiere, or it could have been something either even earlier than that. But I remember taking video footage and putting it into a computer and being like, holy shit, you can actually like right. make something and cut it together. And we we never got to do a lot of that, but we would, God, man, we did some elaborate stuff. We did a lot of parodies, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. uh, where I grew up in Massachusetts, there was a lot of Native American culture. A lot of everything's named after a Native American, Massachusetts, Algonquin, you know, uh, Connecticut. It's all Native American names. We did a parody of um, the Val Kilmer Thunderheart movie um, and just stupid, ridiculous, you know, teenage kidship. But it was a blast while we were doing it. Right. Yeah. It's it's yeah. just crazy hearing stories, you know, I mean, in this, I mean, I always talk about it because it comes up, but technology changing so rapidly to where, yeah. you know, you hear stories about a George Lucas or a Coppola or a Spielberg. And it's like, they had a rich uncle that had some, you yeah. know, crazy access to this for sure. And then you go to the nineties and it's like, you know, there were actually consumer, the idea of a consumer camera existed. 
yeah. then you fast forward, I grew up in the 2000s. So I was born in 95 and grew up in the 2000s. Like sure. we had VHS cameras and we're trying to cut in the camera, right. you know, cause there was no right. way to do it. And right. then shortly after that, it's like, here's mini DV and you can, yeah. you know, fiber wire it to your HP laptop right. and, right. and right. cutting yeah. an iMovie. It's, it's, it's amazing how much access there is and how quickly, you know, you're able to learn. By well, that, doing. And that's, and, you know, the, the thing about that too, is that there, there's sort of a, that conversation can bifurcate. And what I mean is like, you can talk about how easy it is to make movies now. And you can also talk about um, how, oh shit, I had a second thought and it completely lost me, but you know, you, there's, oh, so I, I know what I was going to say. What happens is, it's like, you can talk about how easy it is to make movies. Now. You can use an iPhone mm-hmm. and Premiere, which is like 20 bucks, 30 bucks a month or whatever, and make something really, really cool. And the other side of that is, I think being a filmmaker is the most difficult of the creative professions. Because if you want to be a guitar player, my 11-year-old my son, for some reason, cosmically adapt, cosmically like linked himself to Cliff Burton from Metallica. And like he's been playing the bass since he was like eight. And he's wow. incredible at it. And I'm not saying that to be like a sports dad. He just has a knack of playing, but he sits by himself with headphones and he plays the bass. Yeah. Okay. So if you want to be a stand-up comedian, you can go do open mics. If you want to be uh, a really good athlete, you can go outside and shoot a basketball all, all day. If you want to paint, you can paint all day. If you want to be a filmmaker, You can't really sit in your bedroom. I mean, you could, you can make stop motion, but it's like, if you want to learn about working with actors and blocking a scene and working with effects people and lighting and camera and lenses and depth of field and editing, like all that shit into one good fucking luck. Like you, you, you have to, like, it is not an easy, you know, unless you go to film school, which is a huge help for some people, you can't really practice being a filmmaker in the traditional sense. You can't, practice being Eli Roth or Catherine Bigelow. You know, these are people that have made 10, 20 movies or whatever. You yeah. have to like get a camera and cast it and get a story and shoot it and edit it. And you know, like, it's, it's a process. So it's, it's probably the most difficult, I think of the creative fields to, to try to, to try to do, or at right. least to try to practice, you know, that's why you look at like, um, PTA doing hard eight and then boogie nights when he was like 24, 26. It's like, right. what? It's like, what? Like, oh my God, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, For sure. Did you go the route of film school or did it, was it just learning by doing? No, I'm, I, I, I don't want to say I made some mistakes in my life. Cause I never did. I never got like addicted to drugs. But what I did was when I was in high school, it was clear that I wanted to be a filmmaker but I never followed the path of like, oh, maybe I should go to USC. Maybe I should go to Sarah Lawrence. I just went to college and like partied and did all the things and chased girls. And, and um, you know, about for about 10 years of my life, I just lived in Boston working. I was making good money being a graphic designer and mm-hmm. riding my motorcycle around. And then when I was 30, I was like, Jesus, man, like if I want to do this, like I need to like try to do it because yeah. – I don't try now, like it's never going to happen. And um, so it was, I definitely was late, you know, in my sort of coming out of the womb, so to speak, and in working professionally, at least. Right. Right. Do do you think there was any, any benefit on the flip side of that? Like, obviously there's always a flip side. Do you think there's any benefit to like, you know, working regularly and 
growing up a little bit before jumping into like the Hollywood system. And, and it's, it's definitely possible. I mean, when I think I met a kid, uh, we just did fantastic fest and there was this kid, Corey, who short played before black Friday and it was fantastic. And I met him at a party and he was really young. So a kid like that has clearly got the acumen to be a director. Uh, I just don't think I was smart enough in my early twenties to like, you know, I, I definitely think living life and experiencing things, uh, especially going on to work with, you know, rock and roll bands and stuff and getting to know personalities. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe if I started when I was 20, I would have been doing it when I was 25, but you need to like experience some shit before you can just jump into it. Unless you're some sort of like savant, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, let's definitely talk about that because you, your early, I mean, your early work is with Aerosmith. You know, how how did that happen? Well, you know, what was the, how do you end up working with like Steven Tyler and creating these music videos and two documentaries? It it comes right off the conversation we were just having, because when I was like 30, (laughs) I was living in Fort Lauderdale, helping a buddy of mine open a bar. And I was miserable because I was just like that lifestyle of just like drinking and strip clubs and and, uh, just debaucherous behavior is fun for a time. But yeah. then you go, man, I, I really should probably. So when I was 30, I was like, you know, what? moving back to Boston. I'm going to try to like get my life in order. And uh, I was doing carpentry and I got a call from a girl I went to high school with who had worked with a company that dealt with Aerosmith's um, merchandise and stuff like that. And she was like, hey, I might have an opportunity for you to design some T-shirts. And I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's totally cool. So I started doing that. And then one of the guys that was managing the band was like, well, don't you do like film and edit and stuff like that? And my experience at the time was just, I I had taken a couple courses at BFVF, which was uh, Boston film and video foundation. It's now gone. Um, and I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, I, not that I lied, but I was like, yeah, I can do sure. Whatever. That's and always like, the answer. Yeah, of course. And then figure well, it so, out. <laughs> ironically, I, I Aerosmith has a song called make it. And it's like, basically just like, Hey, fake it until you, can get there. You know what I mean? So they were like, well, we have the six song um, DVD we want to do. Can you edit that? And I was like, sure. And then of course they wheel in like Pelican cases of like beta HD footage, super eight and, and 35 millimeter. And I'm like, they're like, you need to put this all together. And I'm like, it's like trying to render in in like final cut pro. And like, it's just not happening. So it was trial by fire. But when the band, got it they were like wow this is great you clearly have a knack at least for our music mm-hmm. and i met steven tyler and it was you know it's weird you 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 meet people in your life that you you know i'm not going to name any names but when we did black friday there was crew that i worked with that i absolutely fell in love with i mm-hmm. fell in love with my editor chris tonic um chris came from evan schiff who's worked with joe and worked with me on happy birthday evan's now doing captain marvel too so by the time I go do my next film, Chris Tonic may be doing, right. you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 3 because Chris just came off of assisting Suicide Squad and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wow. But I, I fell in love with Chris as a creative person. And um, I also was lucky to become friends with Seth Green. Seth Green and I, we just hit it off. So the thing with Steven Tyler was, regardless of him being a huge rock star, um, you meet people in your life, whether it's a romantic relationship or a working relationship that you either get along with or you don't get along with. 
And Stephen and I just had that thing where we, it was like a vibe. We, we liked a lot of the same things. We had the same views on a lot of the same things. And he was like, well, why don't you come on the road with us and be our documentarian and just film a bunch of shit. And I was like, okay. And then after filming enough stuff, I think it was funny. I was, I was talking to a buddy of mine this morning. who's a huge TV writer, huge. And he's very successful. He's from Boston. And he's written this new show and he, he sent it to me. And a lot of the central characters themes are sort of based on him. And, and, and he was being very sort of um, like the opposite of bragging. He was like, you could tell it was sort of based on him. And I'm like, dude, you're, you're a great writer. Like just, it's okay to, to base something on yourself. Yeah. And um I never would talk about myself in that way, but I will say one thing I did that I thought was smart, which is, which is what got me into happy birthday and got me into doing more work for Aerosmith and now black Friday was I had gone with the band to South America. And then we're supposed to go to Japan. This was right after Fukushima happened and they canceled it. They're like, it's too much radiation. We're not going to go there. But I knew like we went, we ended up going, we're eating kelp pills and, and we filmed the band being there and, and I knew that something magical sort of happened. And when we got back, my wife was pregnant at the time. And I was like, you know what, let me just edit together like this sort of mini concert film. Cause I love concert films. I love yeah. stop making sense. I love the last waltz. I was like, let me uh, put a concert film together and just show the band. And they were recording in LA. I paid my own money. I flew out to LA, rented out a theater and got the whole band. I was like, oh, I have something I want to show you guys. And they had mm. known me long enough to trust me. And they were like, sure. Right. So to I, show showed, up. Yeah. <laughs> I showed them a sort of truncated version of the concert film. And Joe Perry, who is very sort of serious, very sort of all business. The movie ended, he got up and he hugged me. And he was like, that was incredible. So mm. I did have the chance to work with the band. I did have the opportunity to do things for them. But I also had the balls to to take a risk to make a concert film that they ended up putting out. And that was like my first real job. And if I had never taken that chance, I probably wouldn't have made happy birthday. So, you know, that was yeah. one, one risk I took that paid off for sure. Yeah. That's huge. And so many people are resistant for whatever reason, you know, I, I work with a lot of people, podcasters, business owners, entrepreneurs, yeah. like, and, and there's always this feeling of, I want people to come to me and give me this opportunity because I'm so talented. And when I talk with people like you, or, you know, even talking, I mean, talking to people like Joe Lynch or talking with, you know, fill in the blank with anybody who has, you know, made it to be able to work professionally, which is no right. small feat. Right. They're always starting by, I put something on a credit card or I booked yeah. this flight yeah. or I did this yeah. thing that opened the door to me. Yep whatever, hitting this point, getting this gig, meeting this person who five years later, we ended up doing something together. That's so, so important. And I wish more people would, would grasp that, that concept. Yeah. yeah. And the other side of it too, is you have to realize like, you know, th- there's no specific, you know, it's so funny when people get mad about like nepotism in our business. Uh, right. You know, I know a lot of people don't like Max Landis and, you know, the, the, regardless, the kid has written some good stuff. But his dad is John Landis. And, you know, I know that recently, I think it was like Sean Penn's daughter and Spielberg's daughter and a couple other people did a short film or something. And everybody was all pissed off. And I was like, 
don't you guys realize that like Campbell Scott is George C. Scott's son right. and like um, Jamie Lee Curtis is um, to- um, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee's daughter. Yeah. Like nepotism has been around as long as, I mean, look at royalty. It's like, it, no. and in every so, industry, it's, it's not like it doesn't exist with plumbing. It does yeah. not like it doesn't exist with auto dealerships. Right. You know, everything right. is, I know a guy who knows a guy or, you know, my friend's son or, uh, you know, it, it's everywhere. I rem- yeah. I remember, I don't know Eli personally. A lot of people ask us, if we know each other. Cause he's from Boston as well. But I remember, I remember when I, I think I was in going to BFVF in the early two thousands when um, Eli did cabin fever there's so many kids were pissed off. Oh, his father gave him a million dollars. His father gave him. I was like, who cares? Like, good for him. You know yeah. what I mean? And he made a great movie and he's gone on to have a great career. So yeah. it's like you, you either have to figure out a way to hustle or do a Kickstarter or, yeah. or find a relative that's willing to donate or whatever. But th- there's no there's no rules. And if, and if that sort of thing's going to piss you off and. You're just going to fall behind. Well, yeah. And also you got to really dig deep and ask yourself if you were given a million dollars, could you make cabin fever, cabin fever? You know, <laughs> like yeah. there's a, yeah. there's that piece of yeah. it too. You know, it, it, yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. It, I, I'm curious going from the documentary side to narrative with happy birthday. Tijuana? I am not taking you to Tijuana. I am taking you to the real Mexico. Have you actually been to Mexicali before? I mean, what's the danger level we're looking at here? Oh, oh, oh. Is it number one on the top 10 most dangerous cities in Mexico? No, <laughs> Stop worrying. I've taken care of everything. You guys want to have some fun? <laughs> <laughs> Only weird if you make it weird. I hate chicken. Donkey cheesy. <laughs> Tonight's my birthday. Oh. Wanna party at our hotel? what inspired that concept? Um, and then uh, was this real life experience with Steven Tyler uh, traveling around? Um, yeah. And then, well, it's funny. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. And I was just going to say, and then how did you kind of get the wheels turning? Cause it's a big jump going from documentary to scripted. So how did that kind of play out? So I did uh rock for the rising sun, which I think was in like 2013. And uh, ironically enough, my buddy who I was just talking about the TV writer, he had a lawyer. So he sent it to the lawyer and the lawyer was like, Hey, this is great. I think I can sell it for you. He's like, I'm going to introduce 
What? I said, great. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he was, he introduced me to a guy uh, by the name of Jay Cohen, who was at Gersh. He's a packaging agent. And he sent it to Jay and Jay was like, oh, I think I can sell this. And uh, we sold it to Sony and it came out and the band was really happy. And then Jay was like, well, what do you want to do next? And I was like, well, I, I want to do feature features. And he was like, well, send, send me something. You have some, something you wrote. And uh, this was like 2016 or whatever. So I'd sent him a, um, it, it's so weird how this industry works too, because it's today's December 6th, 2021. There's a producer who used to work at a pretty well-known production company. He went off on his own. He came across the script I wrote. He's actively trying to get it made right now. He literally just texted me and was like, can you change this thing? Da, 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 right before you called me. The reason I'm telling you that is, when I met Jay Cohen, he was like, well, do you have any screenplays or whatever? So I sent him this cop movie that I wrote called Gut Shot. Mm-hmm. And he was like, this is good, man. He's like, this is really good. He said, however, you haven't made a narrative movie yet. This is like a five, $10 million movie. You're not going to be able to get it financed, you know, because you haven't done anything. So do you have anything else? And I said, well, I have this idea. Uh, it's pretty much based on a lot of real life things that have happened to me and my friends. And he was like, well, send it to me. And he was like, well, what do you think you need for this? And I was like, I don't know, like 500,000. And he was like, I I think I could probably raise that. So we got a couple of, uh, it's, it's funny too. Happy birthday. Right around that time I had met Robert Rodriguez and I had met Alexa Vega from spy kids and she was supposed to do happy birthday instead of Vanessa Lenji's. And the financing was sort of hinging on Alexa because she's very big in like Latin America and stuff like that. Right. And Alexa dropped out like a month before we were shooting uh, for religious reasons or whatever. Um, And Jay went out and raised the money and I cast Brittany Olford and Matt Bush and, you know, Eric Palladino. And we shot it in, uh, in Santa Clarita, I think, like 11, 12 days, maybe it was like two weeks. Wow. And then yeah. Oh, it was like, yeah. Yeah. So, but that was a great experience. I, I loved making that movie. That's crazy because it's, there's so many locations in that movie. Well, Okay. So, okay. So looking at it this way, the, the desert was free, right? The hotel room was, uh, the one set we had built, built okay. on a soundstage, which we kind of got for free in Santa Clarita. The streets of Mexico was the kudos to Brendan, uh, Brendan, my production designer, who's incredibly talented, um, redressed the streets from the canceled show Vegas with Dennis Quaid and Michael Chiklis. It was there and built. It was a set. Oh, yeah. It was a street set. It's just like two streets. Definitely kudos because I was sitting there thinking, you know, I, I, cause I knew it was going to be, you know, lower budget movie. I was, I was thinking, yeah. man, they yeah. ran around Mexico and shot this crazy no. movie. So no, there was that. And then the rooster, the, the cockfighting was uh, a warehouse. And my DP at the time was like, well, I've been to one of these. They just drape <laughs> like tarps on the ceiling yeah. so we can do that and light it. Um, and I'm trying to think of what else. Yeah. I mean, that was, it was just like, who's who's in who's gonna work for shit money can we make this movie and like you know happy birthday by no means was a hit but i will tell you it did make its money back right and for a small movie like that's pr- that's pretty good you know yeah yeah no it, most, most movies lose money right right yeah it it, it definitely I, I mean it, it does a really good job and it hits like 
to me, when I was watching, I was just impressed with how much ground it covers. Like, cause it is like a, it's a rip roaring movie. Like you're going yeah, from one yeah. spot to another. I mean, yeah. you've got a lot of the one room stuff, you know, in the hotel, sure. but like, sure. it's, it's pretty crazy. Like how much ground you cover. And then also too, like, there's a lot of names in that movie that are cool names to see pop up. I mean, you've got sure. like Jeff Daniel Phillips, you've got, yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, Steven Tyler, you yeah, know, like yeah. you've got, you've got these really cool personalities and names in it that kind of spice it up. The um, funniest thing about Steven for that movie was <laughs> I was prepping to shoot it and I called him and I was like, Hey, uh, can I stay at your house? He was renting a house from Salma Hayek at the time. And no and big deal. Like, hey. <laughs> it actually wasn't a huge house. It was a, like one of her, like rental properties she right. owns. Uh, I mean, it's still a beautiful house, but I called him and I was like, Hey, we're trying to save money. I need a free place to stay. Can I stay at your house? Can I use one of your cars? And he was like, yeah. He's like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm shooting my first movie. He was like, what do you mean? You're not, I'm not going to be in it. And I was like, do you want to be in it? And he was like, of course. So I like had this, this subtle character that, and Rick rewrote it for him. And he, dude, he did it. And he like, didn't ask for any money and like, didn't complain. Really? He was so happy to be a part of it. Yeah. And then when the movie came out, it was like, of course, cause it's Steven. It's like people entertainment weekly. We get all this free press. They're like, right. Hey, look at Steven Tyler playing a drug dealer in this stupid right. little indie film. Yeah. So, and he's really good at it. He's really funny in that movie. Yeah. I will tell you this. I love Steven like a crazy uncle, but I was concerned because I saw him. No disrespect to F Gary Gray. who's an incredible director. I saw him in Be Cool and I was like, ooh, I don't, I was like, I don't know. If Steven's bad, he's going to yeah. stop the movie. Right. But I then found this clip of him in this little indie film with, um, oh, his name escapes me. The dude, character actor, incredible character actor. He was in Platoon. He was in First Bueller's Day Off. We, I, we could look it up and find it for sure. I'm, but anyway, I'm, I'm on IMDb right now. We're, we're going to get this. He was in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he was also in um, Platoon. And um, he checked the movie Goodnight Joseph Parker. That's the movie, I'm pretty sure. I think Rada Mitchell was in it, maybe. I'm looking right now. Richard Edson. He's the guy. Debbie Mazar, Kim Dickens, Paul Sorvino. So this is the oh, movie. Gotcha. This is the movie Stephen was in. So I saw a clip and I was like, I was like, holy shit. I was like, he's fucking great. I was yeah. like, well, you know, if I can get, I mean, I'm sure when he did be cool, he was intimidated because Uma Thurman's there. Right. Um, so I said, well, if I can get Steven to act like he did in this little indie film, then he'll be great. And when he got on set, he was fucking fantastic. And mm. that's the funny thing is like, people were like, Steven Tyler's in an indie movie. And everyone's like, I remember the guys from Gersh when they were selling the movie, they were like, dude, he's really good. He's yeah. really good in the movie. So he yeah. did a great job. No, he's know? really, he's really good. And it's not, you know, obviously it's cool going like, oh, there's Steven Tyler, but it's right, not distracting right. from the movie, which it For could have sure. easily just been, like you said, it could have stopped the movie. I mean, like here's Steven Tyler phoning it in really quick, yeah. a quick scene. And yeah, it's, exactly. it's really cool. Uh, well, look, I've I got to talk about Black Friday because um, sure. I, I started seeing the trailers come out and I was, yeah. uh, you know, I, I was super excited because, you know, Bruce Campbell back right. in action. Right, Devin right, Sala. Right. I've been watching Chucky. So I'm like, oh, he's, yeah. he's great. And Quite he's really, really good in that. Um, and, you know, but I was also like reticent too, because, you know, sometimes you get holler, holiday horror movies thrown out, you yeah. know, with crappy CGI and a couple big <laughs> names and, and yeah. there you go. And so I started the movie 
see Robert Kurtzman did effects. I'm yeah, seeing yeah. Devin Sawa. I'm seeing all these different names pop up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how did this kind of come together? Because it doesn't for how this movie could have been and what, what I was reticent and worried it was going to be. It is sure. not. It's a really, really good movie. Um, you well, know, you know, it's to- funny. It, it's funny because we're now entering a phase where it's like the I, I this is the first time in my career where I've made something that I really don't fucking care. Like what the Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> I know the critics was at like 65 and then the audience was at like 49 or 50. And like. I don't spend a ton of time reading reviews and stuff like that, but I've noticed that the majority of the people that are mad, they're mad that Bruce is not playing Ash mm-hmm. and they're mad that there's not enough zombies or people are mad that, that it's just another fucking zombie movie that, yeah. but, but it's not, it's not enough horror. So I'm like, dude, not the movie I wanted to make. Happy black Friday. We love toys. We still on for pancakes tonight. Chris, you're on reg for the night. We're short staff. Wait up! I'm Emmett. You ever worked retail before? No. Well, there's no day more harmful to retail workers than this day. Oh, what do we love? Toys! Good job. Places, everyone! Three, two, go, baby! Go Black Friday! Thank you very much. Happy holidays. What the f***? There is something wrong with the shoppers. Oh, we gotta do something. We're one hour into Black Friday, and we're escorting customers away from the store. No, 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 no! Was that the new guy? Our shoppers are going crazy. Whatever you do, don't let them gather. They're building something. At this point, we're just in their way. We're gonna have to fight. I don't think this night can get any worse. <laughs> Does anybody else just think that's funny? Die! I told you they never die. We have to make a run for it. Exactly. Black Friday is over! Tucky says we're all going to die. Back up, homie! The fire will sit and admire the stockings all filled up at last. Generations of all the glitter, silver and gold. I love it here. The police are here. Thank God. It's the time. Got you throwing buses right here, mother. I try to read a couple scripts a week and I was in the process of getting my cop movie done when Andy had sent this to me and I read it and I was like, wow, this is kind of a wacky over the top, like fun gremlins type of movie. Yeah. And I emailed Andy back and I was like, this is really cool. Let's, I really like this. Let's Mm. see if we can get this made. And that was almost two years ago to the day today. Like this was like November, December of 2019. So wow. yeah, two year, two year process from start to finish. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. What were the influences? Cause obviously you didn't write the script, but yeah. you know, as a director, your flir- flourishes on the movie and, and you obviously bring the tone and, and set this, the stage for it. What were the inspirations running through your mind 
as you kind of went to it, you mentioned, you know, kind of the, the gremlins ask inspiration, which gremlins gets referenced in, you know, happy birthday quite a bit as well. So I'm guessing that, <laughs> that, yeah. that rolls in a little bit, but what were some Chris, of the, I, I've, I've been working with Chris on a TV thing. I wonder <laughs> if he's sick of me yet. Cause I've mentioned his name a couple of times in, in interviews. So he could well, be sick of me. feel free to make him sick again. Uh, if that was one of the inspirations, but you know, what were you kind of referencing in your mind? Cause I think everyone went in going, Oh, it's Ash versus Evil Dead, you know, right. which is where I think some of the negative criticism came in, which I was yeah, kind of relieved because yeah. I didn't want just to sure. knock off people. Dead. Well, I that's, something- you know, and honestly, that's on Bruce, because when we looked at the cast, we, we Andy and I, Andy was very involved in the entire movie, to his credit. Um, and, you know, we cast Devin first. He was kind of our anchor. You know, there was a lot of names thrown around like Johnny Knoxville or Dak Shepard. And I was like, you know what? Devin, to me, is more... You, those guys are both amazing. They're both amazing actors, but it, they're a little too goofy for what I wanted for yeah. Ken. So we cast Devin and kind of made him the anchor. And then after that, it was like filling in the blanks of who we thought works. And it was like Bruce and maybe Michael Rooker. And mm. I was like, My, Michael's like guns. That's guns guy. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that. And then um, Bruce called me and we talked and he was like, look, I have, two requests and one was like a technical thing. And the other one was like, I'm not playing Ash. I was like, well, I think you can see from the character that it's far from that, you know? Um, And, you know, when Andy sent it to me, I always saw it as sort of a, uh, more of a cross between like Carpenter and Columbus meeting somewhere in the middle. I think if you had had somebody like Joe do it, it would have been, probably more gory, probably more yeah. go- goofy in a good way. You know, like Joe has great senses um, to be, to lean into the camp a little bit, but I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do, uh, I wanted it to be like, like Krampus is the most ridiculous concept, but it works because Mike's sensibilities are very sort of like Amblin almost. Yeah. Yeah. Mike fits right in with like sort of that Spielberg Zemeckis vibe. And I wanted to make something that was maybe closer to, to Krampus than than uh, than like a, an Evil Dead or something like that. Right, you know? right, yeah. I definitely, I definitely see that, and yeah, I, I love Krampus, and it does tonally feel feel very similar. I, I don't think enough people talk about that movie, but it's it's really really solid. Um, but yeah, I was I that's what I was impressed with Black Friday is I think again it's where like when I see certain concepts or I see a poster, you know, especially Bruce Campbell, you know, a lot of people when they pay to have Bruce Campbell in their movie, like they want him to just be Ash, you know, which is a bummer because, you know, yeah, he's going to be fun doing that. But like Bruce does when he goes outside that, he does some really fun stuff. I mean, Raimi with the Spider-Man movies, I mean, using him in those cameos, he's he's he's, so funny. He plays somebody different in each movie. Right. Which is hilarious. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that's the thing that for me, uh, for Bruce, that I sort of feel bad. I don't feel bad, but it's like, you can, if you're Bruce or you're Steven Tyler, you've been those guys your entire life. Yeah. And you sort of get pigeonholed into, you know, being certain things, whether it's this big, loud, androgynous rock star or this guy who's always killing monsters. And uh, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm trying to potentially do another project uh, with Bruce and it's, it's uh, may never happen, but, you know, for conversation's sake, it's much more like, sort of dark, almost like a Hemingway, if he didn't die, just real cynical, wise-ass, like narcissist, 
mm-hmm. who works at nighttime in LA. And it's like, you know, Bruce is the guy that I want for that because I think if you've ever seen him on burn notice, like he has the mm-hmm. acting ability He's to be somebody, show, yeah. yeah, to be somebody other than Ash. And I feel like it's a disservice to some of these actors where they're, you're always just expecting them to sort of play the same guy all the time. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. You saw, I mean, you see that with Devin, um, you know, it's to me, I hadn't seen him really in anything since, um, uh, you know, final destination and, and mm. like those, that period of film. Yeah. And then when he showed up in Chucky first, I didn't even know it was him. I was like right. watching and right. uh, when he's playing the, the right. drunken, the drunken dad. And I was like watching, yep. I was like, who is this, this guy's really good. And I was like, Oh, it's Devin, you know, and it's interesting seeing him doing a totally different, personality and persona and bringing this like different approach to these characters. And in this, this movie, like I can't picture and you know, like a Johnny Knoxville in that role, as much as I love right. Johnny Knoxville, right. Right. I, this movie has this very weird, like grounded feel that kind of Krampus has as well, where it's like, that's what I want. That's literally what I was preaching the entire time yeah. because Andy had written the original script was much darker and wacky. You know, it was yeah. like, we never got to meet Ken's daughters or Chris's family. We opened up in the store and like a little girl got killed. And then like people's skins were, were getting ripped off and stuff like that. And I was like, Andy, like, I don't want to go in that direction. I want to make it fun, but scary, but also like mm-hmm. be grounded. And that's yeah. at least I feel like where we ended up, you know, which was my intention. You know, yeah. how much time did you have on this one versus say like happy birthday? Uh, we shot for 15 days plus another three. So 18. So we had like three really good solid weeks. And then another, I think two days, Oh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday in the store. And then one day off location to shoot the two scenes in the houses. So it was like 15, 16, like almost 18 days, but we lost a day because of COVID. So it's technically 17 days. Right. Right. How affected was the production by COVID? Cause I know like, obviously like, casting extras for black friday during covid is it was brutal there's a couple things uh yeah. you know we we did all practical effects yeah. um, ex- and even the the white things that come out of their mouths i i just i ultimately am not happy with the way that it looked because there were there were some things involved just with like like post-production and COVID and stuff like that, that we just couldn't avoid, you know? Yeah. But the two big ones were um, second day of shooting, which was supposed to be the scene when Ken and Marnie meet in the store, Chris and Ken walk in. Uh, D- poor David, if you're watching this, forgive me. David's a cinematographer who's like the nicest guy in the world. He would like make hot sauces and bring them to set and give them to me. <laughs> and he's like the most vigilant OCD germaphobe you've ever met in your life. Shows up to get COVID tested. They do the swab. He gets what's called a TNP, which is test not performed, which okay. means like don't have his results. Sorry, had to shut down because IATSE and SAG would not allow us to shoot. Right. So we lost a full day. So you're on an indie film and the budget's, you know. That's a week. Not, yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. not high, but it's, you know, it's probably a couple hundred thousand dollars you're losing because of that one day. Yeah. Um, so that was a real pain in the ass. And the other thing was, um, you know, I, from the people that liked the movie, I'm seeing like, wow, these performances were great. The cast was great. And I, I sort of had wanted to 
build my career and pride myself on being someone that's good with actors and being able to get good performances. And I feel like I achieved that. And what's difficult about that is, you know, you're, you're on set trying to talk to Ivana Vaquero where she's like getting ready to cry. And it's like, I have a face shield on and like a mask. <laughs> right. It's like, you, you can't have an intimate conversation with somebody. So that was, that was a pain in the ass. And, but I think the biggest one for me was one of the reasons I hired David Cruda. If you Google him, he's done some amazingly magical work with like atmosphere, like smog mm-hmm. and uh, mist and lights. And that's what I wanted the toy store to look like. And like, we couldn't use any of that stuff. We didn't mm-hmm. get to use any smoke and we had to put it in in posts and it, it it's okay. It works in places but other places it doesn't work, but you know, that's like, Hey, you want, you want slash to come, you're going to play, pay slash a million dollars to play at your daughter's bar mitzvah. But by the way, here's the guitar with only two strings on it. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's David. We got sort of, uh, handicapped in that way, not to use that term in, in the wrong way, but like, I seen like a golf handicap, but he, right. he got, David got fucked because yeah. SAG and IATSE would not allow us to use smog because they said that COVID could transfer in the particles. And by the way, this was in the Jeez. peak of COVID before vaccines were even out. So right. this was like, this was like peak of lockdown. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's so crazy. How'd that work with extras? Because I have to imagine that was a another, terrible. terrible. Yeah. We like the most we could use at one time was like five. And we had one day, we had one day where we could use a bunch to do the in-store sort of black Friday. Opening They're running in and stuff. Yeah. yeah. But other than that, like Andy, the way Andy had written it is like the store is infected with people running around and it was like, we couldn't do that. We had like five extras to use. Yeah. You know? So yeah. Um, was, um, I, I want to ask about the, obviously the influence side of this. So uh, spoiler for those who haven't seen it, but at the very end, when you kind of see the mm, creature for lack of a better yeah. word, kind of in its yeah. final form, was mm-hmm. that a lot of carpenter influence, like the thing, or were you going more like the dead alive, Peter Jackson giant, or what was kind of the, the, the inspiration for that design there? I think it's a, it's a, it's probably a longer answer than that. And it's so funny because that's one of the things that people are split on. I've seen so many comments are like, I fucking died. That is the funniest over the top. Boy, these guys are really, I heard another podcast where these guys are like, man, they went for it. And it was so funny. And I heard other people be like, that's the dumbest fucking dumb chicken thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's like, obviously we were going for this big over the top ridiculous ending. Yeah. It was more like, I didn't, I said to Andy when he first said, I was like, Andy, I think people are tired of zombies from the walking dead. I said, yeah. so let's, let's do something different. And I, I said, you know, these shoppers are, almost was it like, originally just purely zombie? You, well, Andy had, it was zombies, but they had tentacles kind of like, remember, um, resident evil esque. Yeah. Or, what was the show that del Toro did with Corey Stoll? Um, the strain. Yes. It's a lot like that. I mean, Andy had written this script in like 20, 15, 16. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like, let's change that. I said, and let's think about what it really means to have these people coming in, turning into something. And I was like, they're, they're kind of fucking vultures. And I did this initial sketch Mm -hmm. and I sent it to Andy and he was like, Oh, Andy's great about, you have an idea. He's a, he's a great team player. You know, he did some things that I, like I would do some things and Andy would change them back. And then I would do something, Andy would do some things and I would change them back. And it was, it, it worked, you know? So he was like, he was sold on the vulture thing. So when Kurtzman got involved, 
we started talking about what the creatures looked like. And ultimately Bob was like, well, what do you want to do with this mega shopper at the end? Mm. And I was like, Bob, you know what, man? Like you are the type of guy that deserves a shot to go, well, maybe it should be like this. Like for me to work with Kurtzman and not go, Hey Bob, what do you think this monster should look like? Yeah. To tell him, Hey, do this. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to micromanage Bob Kurtzman. Right. You know, he had some ideas. We went back and forth. What if it was this sort of like giant blobby vulture thing that was made up of all the shoppers and it had like half a human face and half of a vulture face. And like, I had a, I did a podcast with Bob, uh, I think in the UK and they were like, well, what are you guys working on next? Or what would you like to work on? And Bob said, he goes, I would rather work on another movie like this than, than another Friday the 13th because you, as a person like Bob, you just want to be able to flex your wings and show people what you can do. So he, he hired some kid and uh, the, I think it was like someone that works for him. The kid did this sketch of this thing with like this wing in the faces. And we were just like, yeah, that's fucking amazing. Like, how could we not do that? You know, right. just something I'd never seen before. Yeah. 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 No. Um, yeah. Before we get to the end here, I mean, Robert Kurtzman, obviously I'd be remiss if I didn't ask any questions about that. Like how did that end up coming a place? Did you reach out to him specifically or was it just, you put out, and he reached out and was interested in the job. Like, how does that come to play? Cause he's, I mean, he, he's as much a legend as a Bruce Campbell or, a, oh yeah. you know, no, anybody he, else. In uh, he, he was friendly with our producer Warner and Warner was like, I think I can get Bob Kurtzman. And I was like, well, that's all I need to know. Yeah. And Bob and I had a conversation and then he came on and he brought his whole team out from Chicago, um, excuse me, Ohio. And uh, that's, that's, you know, the rest is history. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, cool. I'm going to move us here into our rapid round. Uh, but I, I do want to ask, I, or I do want to say one more thing here. Um, yeah. When it comes to working on a project, you mentioned like the setback of COVID and like not be able to use the fog you wanted. And there's things in the movie and you'll hear this from anybody, whether they had a million dollars and more days or a hundred million dollars, you know, oh, there's something that I just never quite got right. I mean, even Scorsese with taxi drivers, still the blood irks sure. him in that last scene. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, for those that are listening who are filmmakers, what would you say to people who, you know, like any filmmaker, they have a vision, they want to accomplish it, but they don't have all the resources to fully deliver on what they want, or they had something get shut down or they lost a day. How do you get to a point where you can appreciate and love what you put out, even though it's not, you know, exactly what you had in mind when you're reading it on the script for the first time. I think you have to put yourself in the shoes of one of the things that aggravates me about people shitting on like Snyder's, you know, justice league, or you could say Snyder's anything. And I agree. (laughs) I just like, people don't realize how difficult it is to, uh, a friend of mine is producing, a. Pale Blue Eye right now, Christian Bale and Scott Cooper. And I talked to him earlier and he, I'm like, dude, you sound exhausted. He was like, Scott, Scott was up at 4.30. Like there was problems mm. with this thing. Like it's an emotionally and physically demanding job. So when you make a movie like Black Friday and uh, people shit on, there's not enough zombies, there's mm. not enough horror. I remember the, one of the first reviews we had was this kid from 
bloody disgusting. And he was like, oh, it really wasn't a lot of blood. And I'm like, well, okay, but that's not really what I was going for. You know what yeah. I mean? You want to watch a lot of blood, go watch a slasher movie, you yeah. know? So my advice to filmmakers is like, I don't know, man, you, you have to realize that it's not easy. And until you do it and realize that there's things that come into play that you can't control, whether it's weather or we had to rewrite a scene because Michael came from LA to Boston and didn't get his COVID test and he couldn't shoot for a day. So we had to rewrite a scene where he left and came back. And it's like, there's so many things that can go wrong. There's so many things that can get in your way. There's little magical things. Like we were lucky to get Patrick Stump to do the score. Um, But it's really fucking hard. It's really fucking hard to do. And until you do it, until you actually go out there and make a movie and risk yourself and risk your humility and all that other stuff and just keep your mouth shut. Cause right. you don't fucking know, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Good advice for, for, and yeah, it's something that I, I think about a lot, you know, it's, it's, I think it, that one of the worst things for me is, is, is if you, if you generally didn't like a movie, that's fine. But some of these people who are like, well, what I would have done, well, yeah. what I would have done, <laughs> it's like, well, but you didn't do that. So just be quiet. Right. Right. You know? Yeah, it, it, that's one of the cool things. I, I talked about this before on the show. But that's one of the cool things of doing this podcast is like, you know, I, talking to different filmmakers. And there was somebody who, you know, the, the, there's been people where like I've watched movies that if I would have watched it three years ago, there's, I would have been like, well, this and this and this lighting here and this. Sure. And, you know, there was a, there was a movie watch. I'm definitely not naming names, but there was a movie I watched where, you know, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the movie. And, but I, I started looking like halfway through, I was like seeing that I was going like, I started noticing certain things that were really cool. Like the movie as a whole, I wasn't super into, Sure, but I was like, it was literally the lighting. I know that's the cliche, like, Oh, the lighting's nice at least. But, <laughs> but I really was, I was watching scenes and I started noticing these, these moments with the lighting where I was like, that is super cool. Like the movie yeah. as a whole, there's things that would have changed. The script wasn't great. There's things like that. But I was like, man, this lighting is super cool. This scene right here, like this is kind of this De Palma-esque moment. Yeah. And I found myself like nitpicking these really awesome things and pulling them out and going like, this <laughs> right. is really cool. Right. And I wish right. more people would do that. Like I wish more people would look at it and go like, there's artistry here, even in some of these movies that aren't great. And there are movies that aren't, aren't good. Like I'm not saying like every movie's great and should be watched and loved, sure, for sure. but there's, there's a lot more good movies than I think we give credit to. And especially when you start hearing production stories and you realize they had a hundred grand in two days, it's like, what can you find to praise about this and, well, and see potential for future projects? It's that. And we're also living in a culture where people are so hair triggered to just hate on something. Got to get that letterboxed, uh, letterboxed hype going. <laughs> I mean, it's like, Oh fuck. The, oh, I fucking hate this guy. I fucking hate that person. Or it's yeah. like, I, I wanted to do a documentary called I hate Nickelback. And it was, <laughs> it was really to just uncover the reasons of why people hate on certain things so much. People hate on Mark Wahlberg or they hate yeah. everybody now is hating on Pratt. I understand he's conservative and that's not really cool, but like, the dude's just an actor. He's just yeah. an actor and he's married and he like, he raises lambs to eat and like, who gives a shit? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or right. people hate on Nickelback or people hate on the band Godsmack. And it's like, there's so much misplaced anger and hate just in the world in general. It's like, man, like hate, like something that's really tangible, 
don't yeah. hate on an actor because you don't like their face or hate on machine gun Kelly because he's now doing rock music and he's dating Megan Fox, who you fantasize about for your whole life. It's just like, man, pick, pick a different battle, you know? Right. A hundred percent. Well, look, <laughs> I want to, I, I want to respect your time. So I'm going to move us here into our uh, rapid sure. round. Got some quick questions for you. Sure. First of all, if you were given the green light to remake any film, what would you choose and why? Uh, I would remake Crawl because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. And I feel like even though it's a remake, I feel like fantasy movies like that that are sort of one off, just enjoyable things and not huge franchises like Marvel or Disney uh, are just really, really fun. And Crawl actually has an incredible uh, trivia. Liam Neeson was in Crawl. Crawl has a great opportunity to have a really big cast. Mm. So I would love to remake that. So I think the Russo brothers have the rights to it. So if they're listening, they can call me. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, what do you think is the best decade of film history? That's a tough question, man. I mean, I've heard Tarantino shit on the eighties yeah, because he hated like all the John Hughes and all that and all that fun stuff because movies became very sort of popcorny. Um, I would maybe, you know, and it's funny too, because guys like Cameron, guys like PTA are not coming into their own without guys like Robert Altman or mm-hmm. Scorsese. So I'm going to have to say seventies. Yeah. Yeah. The seventies is, I think the eighties is the easy gut answer. Cause there's so many, I mean, I start thinking like, what would I do without Friday 13th and nightmare on Elm street and all these movies, sure. but watching movies from the seventies, there's like so many oh. crazy it, it's, there's it's that perfect period where it's like there's no rules right <laughs> but then also like when you start getting near the the end of the 70s you start getting the money and like the blockbuster feel of the oh, 80s yeah, yeah. Like without Jaws and star yeah. wars and like right. don't forget things like apocalypse now right and like weird movies that teetered on the edge of like being x you know that right. was like supposedly when the studios were just allowing all these auteurs to like just go make whatever movie they wanted so right yeah yeah it's yeah. it's a cra it's a crazy weird period and you know i i get the complaints about the 80s and like there's some of the but but also i mean how do you eliminate that period i mean spielberg at his peak oh, you've got yeah. there's there's too much there to throw away right, um, and aliens and predator and and all of the john hughes stuff and yeah. all of the great b movie stuff that came out in the 80s and mm-hmm. you know a lot of the trauma movies and right. like you know uh there's just I mean, God, I remember being a kid and watching things like Band of the Hand, which is like a B-movie with like Lauren Holly and Leon. Um, and, you know, don't forget the 80s had uh, a lot of great romantic comedies and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So it's, it's hard to shit on the 80s as a decade for movies. Right, right. I definitely agree with Tarantino on the 50s because I've heard him talk about the 50s and 80s. I can see his complaints in the 50s because it's a, there's yeah. a lot of really bland very bland movies in that in that period uh but the 80s is just yeah it's it's hard to hard to i mean the 80s that. you have to think of the 80s as a decade it's like you know pop mm-hmm. collars and, and corvettes and reaganism and everybody was well, making money and- yes but also if you look up to like 1984 that period too i mean you've got like the evil deads you've got the yeah. i mean you you've got that very no holds barred filmmaking it's like 86 on you start getting that very homogenized 50s part two that Tarantino talks about, but there's people, a lot he of may the, be right. He, they, or yeah. I think maybe 80 to 86 is probably a better chunk, right? Uh, than the latter half of the 80s for sure. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, what is a movie that your diehard fans would be surprised that you enjoy? 
Um, that's a good question. I mean, I've seen bridesmaids probably 50 times because it, it makes me laugh so much. Um, but I feel like that's like a real, you know, a, a chick flick or a woman's movie or whatever you want to call. Right. Um, but that, that to me, um, and I've also seen zero doc 30 probably 50 times. Yeah. I freaking love that movie. It's um, incredible. That was a weird one. Cause I watched that movie on like stars or I think it was effects and, yeah. um, and it was first it was like the FX on demand or whatever. And I watched the movie and then it ended. And then I restarted the movie and watched it again. Cause my dad came in the room. And I said, watch this movie. So we restarted it, sure. watched it again. And I ended yeah. up watching it like, like that for a couple of weeks, just rewatching, rewatching. And uh, Catherine Bigelow is maybe the best director of men's action movies, like out yeah. there. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, point break. Because, and Because she makes them super, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't want to say real because that's more like a Paul Greengrass thing. They're just the, the emotional impact yeah. of her movies when you're watching them, I think is really that something that you just don't see that often anymore. You know, right. She kind of reminds me of, um, of early on Oliver Stone a little bit, mm. you know, like yeah. things like platoon, like it's heavy, heavy, but there's a little bit of humor and humanity, but it's like fucking rough, man. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good. Um, what, uh, looking at, looking at black Friday, looking at your documentary work and happy birthday, mm. which of your projects do you think is the best representation of you as a creator? Uh, I mean, probably happy birthday because I wrote it too. And a lot of those experience, a lot of the things that happen in the movie, like going into the bar and the guy making the drink and, um, meeting these unsavory characters like Steven's drug dealer. That's, shit that I experienced with my friends growing up or when I was traveling around the world working for Aerosmith, just getting myself. I remember Matt Bush, who was one of the actors in happy birthday. He was like Eric Palladino who played the Texican. He was on ER uh, and he's now doing a Netflix show. Um, he and I would trade stories about our mm -hmm. childhood or being a 20 something dipshit. And I look over at Matt Bush and he's like, are you guys serious? I'm yeah. like, yeah, just, we were, you know, in the prime later, earlier than you guys, just more debauchery. It was just bad news, you know, slingshotting goats across the border, all that good yes, stuff. Yes, all that stuff. Um, what is the best piece of advice you would give to an aspiring filmmaker who's listening to this? Um, you can't do everything yourself. You know, even if you're a genius writer, director like PTA. Like you're going to have to find a DP that you can work with. You're going to have to find actors that you can work with. I mean, there are guys out there like Bo Burnham who can do it all himself, you know, <laughs> right. yeah. and kudos to him because that, that special is just one of the greatest things I've seen in recent memory. Um, but it's that, and it's also just don't be a dick, you know, because every production I've done, I've been very lucky. It's like 90 to 95% of the crew are great. And then there's like that one or two guys or girls who are just not nice to work with and everybody remembers them, but they remember them for not being good to work with and they never work with them again. So. Right. Right. You know, that's awesome. Well, yeah. I mean, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, for sure. I, I asked you yesterday and we talked today and it was pretty uh, <laughs> rapid turnaround. Yeah. Uh, right so on. I was, uh, I was excited to talk about black Friday and then, uh, 
I was like, I haven't seen happy birthday. So I set my alarm early this morning. I got up at like oh, nice. 5 a.m. and was like, <laughs> cool. I'm like sending out emails and watching happy birthday on the side so I could ask good <laughs> questions about it. Yeah, um, cool. So, uh, but appreciate you doing it and sincerely love getting these insights. And uh, I mean, I, I'm marked me down as one. I really did love Black Friday. Um, cool. I, I thought it was great. Um, Thanks, and I man. seriously like, I mean, just the cast alone, I think is stacked. Uh, there's so many really cool people uh, in the movie. Very, very yeah. lucky, very yeah. lucky to, to get them all uh, involved. You know, I think, and the other thing that's the other advice I can give to filmmakers is like, there's a lot of amazing actors out there. You right. know, um, somebody uncovered recently online that Seth Green is actually the voice of Dower Dennis. Hmm. And they're like, really? how'd you get? Yeah. Yeah. If you oh, go back and watch it, that's Seth. Um, and some people were mad that Michael got killed off so early, but it's like, well, but I wanted there to be an impact of people going, well, if that guy's dead, then the rest yeah. of them are screwed. But the thing with Michael was, is like, I asked his agent, I was like, do you like, is he available? He's like, well, he's only got a week. And I was like, well, can we get him like for a week to do this role? And he was like, let me ask. Like, wow. so it's like, you never know, man. You never know. Like, if you don't think you can get, you know, uh, Dak Shepard or any of these amazing actors, like yeah. just ask, yeah. they might want to do something like that. Right. You know, Steven Tyler is one of the biggest stars in the world. He wanted to play a wacky drug dealer. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because yeah. He you never, never got know. to, you yeah. know, so we're, we're trying to, I, I came across a script recently, which is a, a, a hilarious concept. It's a uh, little girl finds this magical amulet and her grandmother is like catatonic but the little girl's father has done a bunch of bad business deals. So their house gets raided by like all these bad guys and the grant, the magic amulet turns the grandmother into like this ass kicking John wick, like grandma. Right. Yeah. It's just such a great premise and it's a great script. And here's the thing is it's like, well, if you go down the list of like Kathy Bates, Helen Mirren, Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, um, Sally field, like you would hope that maybe one of these actresses is going to get a contact from their manager and be like, I want to play an ass kicking grandma. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, so that's the thing is like, you never know until you ask. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. And, um, and just last thing, as we wrap up, Ryan Lee needs to be in more movies. <laughs> he's, isn't he great? Man? He's, isn't he he's great? great. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing him in super eight when that first came out and I remember watching, I, I remember it just came out in 2015, but goosebumps, like seeing him in those movies, I was like, he's going to be a mega superstar. Like he's, here's, it's unreal. Here's what's funny about Ryan is Chris was like the, obviously the main role, but one of the roles that we had in cast, we cast Devin and then I think Bruce and then Ivana and then Michael. And we just hadn't cast Chris. We weren't really having any luck. And then I started talking to David, the DP and he was like, well, what's, what's like a movie you can hang your hat on that you want this to look like. And I was like, I want it to look like super eight. Mm. And he, so he and I, I watched that, it together yeah. and I was like, Hey, that's the Tom Petty kid from this is 40. And then I went and watched him and he had done, I had seen him twice because my kids watch both goosebumps movies. And I was like, well, I was like, wait a minute. What, like, is he like, what's he, is he available? Yeah. Yeah. That, and that's the thing. And he was like, yeah, dude. And he and I had a zoom and he was like, I'm fucking in. So yeah. Yeah, he's yeah. great. He's great. He's, he's amazing, man. He's amazing. 
Well, look, I could talk to you forever, but I'll uh, I'll definitely right let you let you go. But uh, but thank you so much for for jumping on again, and definitely for anybody listening, click the link in the show notes. Check out Black Friday. Check out Happy Birthday. If you like Aerosmith, go check out. I mean, there's a plethora of Aerosmith content you yeah, can check out as well. Uh, yeah. But I'm super excited for whatever you work on next, and uh, really excited that you uh, you joined me on today's show. Cool. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for listening to the Film School Podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, don't forget to leave a five-star review and hit subscribe so you won't miss a single episode.